You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. In her personal life, as well as her practice as a psychologist, Dr. Mary Lamia has become very familiar with loss. She lost her mother in childhood at the age of 11, her father in young adulthood 10 years later, and her husband of 44 years in 2021, as she was completing her most recent book on grief. Well, in her book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, Finding a Home for Memories and Emotions After Losing a Loved One. Well, Dr. Lamia's book combines psychological insights with numerous case studies from her work with grieving clients and her own experiences. And Dr. Lamia illustrates how loved ones who have died are always alive within us, regardless of spiritual beliefs. And for nearly a decade, she hosted a weekly call-in talk show, Kid Talk with Dr. Mary, on Radio Disney stations. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our esteemed guest today, Dr. Mary Lamia, to the show. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Ward, for that wonderful introduction. Well, you're very, very welcome. And, you know, your topic is something that, uh, well, everybody on Earth deals with at some time in their life. So tell us about your journey to writing your latest book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over. Actually, I didn't think I was going to be writing another book. Uh, Five books were enough. And then a publisher, uh, acquisition editor, contacted me and asked if I was interested in writing a book about shame for the public since I had written one for clinicians. And I thought, well, if I was going to write another book, I would write one titled Grief Isn't Something to Get Over. And she just thought that was a great idea. So she told me to write up a proposal, and I did. And then we met with the development editor at the publishers. And the development development editor said, well, why this title? Do you want to tell people how to get over it? They just got to get over it. And she described a relative she has who at every family gathering brings up her son who died early in his life. And she said, why didn't she just get over it? Can't you just tell these people what to do? So I decided that was not the publisher I should uh, write for. So I found a different publisher and I wrote the book. And as you said, um, while I was reviewing the final edits for the book, my, my husband had a stroke and died that week. So the publisher allowed me to take another month and add it to the book. But there was, there was more actually. Uh, three months after he died, uh, my older son, who was 42, came down with pancreatic cancer. And fortunately, the prognosis was, you know, guarded, but good. And he had surgery and chemotherapy, and um, he's in the midst of more chemotherapy and then radiation, but he'll get through this. But that's been tough. The anticipated loss of a child or the loss of a child is perhaps the worst grief of all. Yeah, because you've covered a lot of subjects in your book from losing a child, losing a spouse. You even bring up uh, things such as murder and suicide, which I'm going to ask you uh, later in the interview. So how was your book shaped 
by not only your work with the bereaved as a clinical psychologist, but also by your personal journey with loss starting in childhood. I mean, my own mother uh, lost her father at the age of 13. So in a way, I can uh, kind of relate to what you had gone through. Well, what's really striking to me is watching my four-year-old grandson and his response to his father being ill. And I was that old when my mother was first hospitalized for cancer. And so we have triggers in our environment that bring up loss, anniversary responses and pattern matches that, that bring up our own losses. So when I talk with patients, I'm, I have to separate out my own um, experience of loss from theirs because everybody is so different. We, we grieve so differently. And our reactions to loss are so varied. Uh, losing my mother as a, a child was um, helped maybe by the ideas that I had in my culture, in my Sicilian culture, where people are remain with us. They they stay with us through our dreams and through our memories and. So I carried her with me throughout my life. And the same with my, my father. My father had heart disease and uh, elected not to have surgery uh, so that he would die and go to heaven and be with my mother. That's all he wanted. And he figured since his children were grown, I was 21 at the time, that we'd be okay, but he lived to die. You know, to lose both parents by the age of 21, um, what what kind of mental state did you deal, I mean, thinking about that? I mean, you, you know, here you are 21 years old, you'd already lost your mother, now you've lost your father. Did you feel alone in any way? Like you didn't have, you know, a parent to kind of lean on or come to for wisdom? Well, certainly but they were always in my head. The problem with that is that our memories are static. They're static images of the people we lost. And we can have them grow along with us in some way in our mind, but they really do remain at whatever age we were when they died. Um, I think I was led by what I recalled about my parents. For example, my mother always said she could heal anything except a broken heart. Now, I can't imagine that did not influence me to become a psychologist. In fact, I was sort of driven to become a psychologist to understand myself and understand other people and understand why things happen. But I wanted to heal my father's broken heart as well. Unfortunately, he died before I became a psychologist, but I had graduated from college by then. Uh, and my father always studied. He only had an eighth grade education, and he, I would see him often studying math books so that he could help his career. And so I was driven to learn. And what I found is that I could learn from all of my experiences, including the loss of my, my parents. Well, in your book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, you do touch on the reality of the broken heart syndrome. 
And is it possible to keep a lost soulmate or a romantic partner alive without pinning or, or pining over them to the detriment of future intimate relationships? Because a lot of people hold that in and it seems to cause derailment in future relationships. As though you can't go on to love somebody else. And that is not the case. But the problem is that sometimes people feel the dead partner is going to compete with a new partner or a new partner believes there's some competition going on there. And what new partners have to do is embrace the lost partner and let their memories be there, the memory of them be there for their, for their partner. It, just because we have a soulmate, let's say, doesn't mean we can uh, put our love elsewhere. Yeah, and I think in a way, um, there's a two-way street there. You have the one that has a loss. And, you know, depending on how they handle that loss, how they handle that grief, it could either be where it does cause problems in future relationships. But then the other side is the person that they do meet. How does that person, you know, respond in a positive manner knowing that maybe, you know, let's say uh, the person is, you know, they're, they're going they're going to get into a relationship or date a widow. OK. And uh, for them, you know, there's got to to me, there has to be a mental maturity to understand that that other person has gone through a loss, you know, maybe have been married 25, 30 years and. Is there in, in that competition, it's really a mental competition in both in both people, correct? And that they and, and I think the open communication between the two would be very positive to move forward in a positive way for both of them to enjoy each other's company and relationship. For example, I've had clients who have married somebody widowed and they will help the children celebrate that parent's birthday, even though the parent is gone. I mean, they, they embrace the memories. You know, in my situation, uh, uh, my father married somebody who had not been married before, and she must have known at some level that my father was still pining away from my mother, even though he, he was pretty good at despising it. But my mother was never, ever mentioned uh, around my stepmother. And um, she she took it out on my brother and me being because of that. And it helped me to understand or at least conjure that up in my mind that that was the reason why she had all of this hostility and anger over nothing and rejected us because she felt rejected. Is it more of rejection or is there an internal jealousy going on? Well, rejection and jealousy are shame responses. And when people feel that shame of disconnection, they respond in one or one of four ways. They either attack others, which she did, or they withdraw or they avoid or they attack themselves. Rather than learn from shame, 
you know, jealous responses make us react in, in some way. And so it's, it's really important that if one is dating a widow or widower that you have those conversations about the, the ghost that's in the room. You said it perfectly because when someone in this case, uh, in this scenario, when someone has lost a spouse and then that, uh, that partner that's alive meets someone else, um, like, yeah, there is a ghost in the room and, and those two people must communicate in a very positive way to start to understand one's feelings. You know, you know, some people, you know, they become a widow after, let's say, being married for three years which does not compare to anything to someone who's been married 20, 30, 40 years. So there's going to be different scenarios. And of course, a person's age and maturity plays into that. But when it comes to grief, you write something in your book and it, and it kind of goes back to your original publisher that you didn't like. But in your book, grief isn't something to get over. You state closure is impossible. Why? And how do you define acceptance of that loss? Well, closure is impossible because we don't erase memories. Grief is all about our memories. Without memory, we wouldn't grieve. We grieve because things are different because than, than, than they were in our memory. We grieve because we lost something that we remember. So closure gives people the idea just the word gives people the idea that they get over it or they stop thinking about it that's so impossible because memories as i said are triggered by dates and places we may pass a restaurant where we had dinner with a loved one who died and all our memories come flooding back and and we feel so sad and it's bittersweet because it's the happy memories that cause us grief. They're not sad memories, they're happy memories. And it's the contrast of what's in our memory versus what we have presently. So there, there's no possibility of closing off our memories and closing off our responses to when they are triggered. I give an example in the book of, of how this, the scent of flowers for maybe 30 years after my mother died just made me sad. And it always reminded me of her, her funeral and all the flowers, the lilies that, that smell. Um, and so I would smell this, the scent of cut flowers was awful for me. And if I smelled flowers, I instantly thought of that. Of that funeral parlor. Now, if I pass somebody who is, happens to be smoking a cigar, which is rare these days, I'm enchanted because my father and grandfather smoked cigars and they were so loving and warm. And I would always think of them. I mean, so given our memories and that warehouse of memories in our head, we're, we're not going to achieve closure. But with time, we adapt. And what happens is that when somebody dies, uh, it, it's interesting. Um, 
the old Kubler Ross criteria about how we grieve, you know, that denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance is so off. And it's been refuted for, in the literature at least, for 20 years. And yet people still believe they go through those stages of loss and they do not. I mean, they may experience some of them, but a lot of it is also contrived. I've had people come to me and say, well, I must be going through that anger stage. And some people make up an anger stage because they think they're supposed to go through it in order to achieve that closure or acceptance. Take denial, for example. Do we really deny that somebody has died? Well, we would have to be pretty disturbed to deny that somebody hasn't died when they have. We don't deny they've died. What happens is that the contents of our memory have all these events and situations of that person where we were with that person when they were alive. Then suddenly they die and they don't exist in real life. And that does not reconcile. We have to reconcile that with our memory. In our memory, they're alive. In real life, they're gone. And for the first few weeks and sometimes months, sometimes a year or so, we don't deny they're gone. We just can't reconcile it in our, our head with our memories. So people have certain symptoms like uh, the first few weeks of loss, they lose things, or they think they've lost something. They're always looking for something. Or something could be right in front of them, and they're looking all over the house for it. Or they can't find their keys. Or uh, they don't know why they went into a room. I mean, really, something really is missing, and your memory motivates you to look for something missing when, really, it's trying to reconcile that loss. It's trying to make sense of the present and the past together. Well, let me ask you this because, you know, I, I know, you know, we all know people who have lost someone. And some of the things that I hear, do you have clients that come to you that are in fear of forgetting the, the, the loved one that they've lost? That, you know, as time goes by, that, the, the the date, so to speak, gets further and further back into the past. Do you have peer, people who are in fear of losing the memory of that loved one where, it's, where it, it pains them that if they actually forgot? I haven't encountered that situation, but it's an interesting scenario. Uh, I suppose one might feel guilty about forgetting a loved one. People certainly feel guilty about meeting somebody else and connecting with them as though they're forgetting the person they love. And and that's just not true. You don't we don't forget. But we may mute the memories a little bit because emotion is is all about attention. If we feel an emotion towards somebody else, our attention goes in that direction and we're distracted. So that may be experienced as forgetting or pushing the other person aside a little bit. Yeah, because but, I know that, uh, you know, my father passed away 23 years ago. Um, the day that he had passed away, uh, which is 
coming up here in the next few weeks, um, many, many times uh, that date that date goes by, and I don't remember it until maybe a couple of days after. But I don't feel bad that I forgot about that date because I have so many other great memories to think back on or, or think of advice or things that he had said to me that, that will always be with me. So like you said, the memory of the ones we've lost will always be with us. It's kind of up to us to really, you know, how we want to re remember them. Now for me, you know, the memories are great, um, but I don't feel guilty or, or shame if I forget the day in which you passed. I always I remember his birthday. What now? Anything that there was, there are ways in which you are remembering, but you're not aware of remembering. And that's what happens to us. Significant anniversary dates or birthdays. Uh, we remember, our mind remembers. We may not consciously remember, but there may be ways in which we remember. For example, I, I give this example in the book, uh, age matching anniversaries. As I reached, I, I got closer to the age my mother was when she died. I knew I wasn't going to die, but I was also sure I was because I was going to match her age. And people have that kind of age matching anniversary with, with parents. Um, and so as I got closer to that day, uh, I thought, well, what am I gonna what am I gonna do to honor that day that I I lived? And I I thought about going to church and lighting a candle or doing something and honor my mother. And so I, I settled into something and and then uh, when that date came around, I wasn't sure if it was one day or another, if it was a, like the third or the fifth or whatever it was. And I looked it up in the old clippings I had, and it had passed the year before, that I had actually distorted the year. And so uh, it, was get, it gets more complicated, but I looked back at what I was doing that time the year before. And I had made some dramatic changes in my life. I started running on a trail. I traded in my uh, station wagon that was a you know, soccer mom car for a, a beautiful car with a sunroof. And I had, had done all kinds of things during that particular time. I did remember. I just didn't know I did. Ah, wow. Now, you state in your book that we grieve because we remember when things were different. Uh, would you expand on this? Sure. Our memory has in its storage all kinds of information that can't be replicated anymore. We can't go to our favorite restaurant with our spouse or we can't do something with our child. And so we remember when things were different and we want it back again. That's why we grieve. You know, um, do you find that people change, um, change their routines a bit? You know, 
Um, you know, a lot of people, millions of people eat out, go to restaurants all the time. Um, and let's say um, a husband and wife had gone to a restaurant that they go to all the time. They love it. Um, it creates great memories. But then one of the spouses die. Um, do you find that some of your clients almost uh, feel guilty of going to that restaurant again uh, without them and maybe stop going to that place altogether and, and kind of reroute their whole life over things like that? Not so much guilt as pain. You know, we want to avoid the, the pain of, of grief, of anguish. It's very important for people to focus on the positive memory rather than on being without. So the difference would be going to the restaurant and ordering what your partner would have ordered. And, and think about them and think about the happy times. But what we tend to focus on is their absence. And the presence of somebody's absence is painful. Mm. Wow. That is very, very powerful. And I think for a lot of people who are watching right now, for a lot of people listening, uh, Dr. Lamia, I think it's where I think the positive move for a scenario like that would for people to go to that restaurant to celebrate that person and relive some of those memories or or conversations and, and, and happy times. Uh, would you let us in on the different types of memory and why all memories of a departed loved one are valid and valuable? Well, I can't let you in on all of them because there's a lot of count of Tolvang was accumulating information about how many types of memories there are and there's 256 he got. But let's just, we could divide it into, let's say, explicit and implicit memories. And explicit memories are those we're consciously aware of, uh, like events and situations that happen that get stored in our brain. Now remember, memories serve purpose. All memories serve the same purpose. They collect and store information for the purpose of preparing us for the future. That's the evolutionary purpose of memory. If we didn't have memory, we'd have to do the same thing over and over again because we would never learn anything. It wouldn't be there. So we have a great big storage house in our heads. So some of these memories are consciously available to us, like autobiographical memory of the narratives of our life that we construct based on events that happen to us. Uh, but some memories are implicit. They are unconscious for the most part. And some of those are sensory memories. And there are also just sensations and feelings that we store. Um, well, the reason we fall in love with certain kinds of people, for example, is buried in our implicit memories. Or if you have a thought and you say, why am I thinking about that right now? That's an implicit memory. You know, it seems like out of the blue, but really it's just part of the memory system. So how we define ourselves is based on a lot of these autobiographical memories and 
emotional memories and what we call constructive memories, how we put things together. Now, um, there was, a, a, we think about all of this memory stuff as created by neuroscientists, but actually one of the most important memory functions we have is involuntary memory. And that was originated by Marcel Proust in his book, In Search of Lost Time. And that was early 1900s. And he was talking about how our sensation, the sensation we experience in the present, brings up memories of the past. And his example was visiting his mother. And it was a cold day. And she gave him some tea and madeline. And he tasted that Madeline, and he felt this extreme joy, like he was a child again. And he said, it wasn't the Madeline itself, it was in me. He did not intend to feel joy eating that Madeline and drinking the tea. And so he coined the term involuntary memory, where memories come up from our experiences in the present that are involuntary. We don't, we're not thinking about having those memories. Problem is, is that, and he also talked about this, he talked about our valley of perceptual skill is basically what it's called, but he didn't coin that. Um, Silver Tompkins, a theorist much later did. But what he talked about is if, as he ate another bite of Madeline and sipped some tea, and then another and another. He wanted to evoke that same involuntary memory of joy that he had felt and the sensations he felt around it. But he noticed that with each bite and taste of tea, it, it didn't happen. It happened less and less and less. That same thing happens when, let's say, people are partnered for a long time and then one partner dies and the living partner will say well i should have appreciated her more or i should have paid more attention to her or i should have listened more or, i should have done this or i should have done that and we have all of these regrets because we've gotten used to somebody we don't taste them the way we might have if they were new and that's an experience a lot of grieving people have, is, is the regret that they, they didn't do enough or feel enough or whatever it is. But just like Proust in the, in the Madeline and tea, as we taste some life over and over again, we get, become habituated. And that's just how people work, how people function, how memory functions, because your memory is saying, well, I don't need another memory of listening to that person. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, it's planning for the future. So why does it need that memory? So maybe you don't have to listen so intently. Yeah. Now there are there's there's two different um, two different scenarios here. So, uh, and I want to ask you this question because I hear this from other people. Those who have lost someone, maybe it's a child, a spouse. Um, in a very unexpected, quick manner, okay, uh, versus those who had 
lost someone because maybe it was a prolonged illness or sickness, um, and then they passed away. Uh, for those that have a, a very traumatic, quick loss, uh, maybe it was a car accident, maybe it was murder, maybe it was suicide. How do you counsel those people when they start asking the question, why? Well, I think what, when people experience a, a traumatic loss, they have a very difficult time processing that memory. It really doesn't fit with the rest of their memories, especially if it's a child or a suicide. There, there is no answer to why, but I can tell you that these people have a very hard time consolidating that memory. Memories become consolidated, they become integrated into the rest of our memories when we sleep or dream or during the day when we're not really thinking. I mean, memory consolidation is an intricate process, but how do you consolidate a memory of murder or suicide or loss of a child? It just doesn't fit with the rest of our memories. And that's why people have nightmares and flashbacks because our, our memory system is trying to consolidate that information and can't. So it wakes us up. Yeah, or because that loss, yeah, because Dr. Lemia, that type of loss, I mean, if it's a loss of a child or if it was uh, you know, a suicide of a loved one, that memory is so strong, it's so powerful and it does, and like you said, it seems out of place when it comes to the way we have memories that are created. And it's so out of place that how do the how do these people take that um, season, that that moment in life, and not have it overpower all of the wonderful memories that they had of the person? Because then you have this defining, exactly. this defining moment that almost erases everything before. How do how it do you... absolutely does? And and traumatic memories are like what we call flashbulb memories. They're a moment in time, and they have a huge emotional impact, and that's why we remember them. We remember uh, things most when they have huge emotional loading to them. And traumatic memories are like that. They're hugely emotional. It takes time and it takes focusing on the positive, wonderful memories of that person. Now, some people say that if you could make some meaning out of it, uh, some redemptive story, it helps. But not necessarily for, for everyone. Uh, Traumatic loss is, is pretty awful for people. I've seen people who have experienced such losses, and one of the hardest things for them is that the people around them don't acknowledge the traumatic loss, almost like you shouldn't bring it up. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a silence to grieving. 
the grievers are often silent about what they feel. Now, that doesn't mean you should be talking about a traumatic loss all the time, because actually, the research is now showing that talking about it all the time does not process it or consolidate it in any way. In fact, it just wears a bigger neural pathway and remember it even more. So not focusing on it, as you've said, focusing on the good memories, but that's really hard to do if, if it's a infant or small child who died um, or suicide. Well, how do, how should people approach someone uh, who has had a loss, maybe it was a child or a spouse. Um, what is the best way for all of us to approach someone that, you know, maybe we don't, we're afraid to, to mention it, or we're afraid that in conversation, it's going to slip out. We mentioned their name and we don't know how to react. How should we handle those situations ourselves? I gave an example in the book of a, a acquaintance of mine who 20 years after the sudden traumatic death of her partner, I decided to bring it up. And I, I just brought up, I mean, do you ever think of, you know, or, or how does that affect you now? I asked her. And she was so relieved to be able to talk about it. And she said, I think about him every day. He was the love of my life and always will be. But nobody ever asked her that. And so she thanked me for asking her. She didn't mind the inquiry. Some people, some people maybe would mind or they would cry and then they would be embarrassed. We have to be prepared if we ask somebody about their grief for for what we'll get and say cry it's not like we've done a bad thing they they are just feeling yeah i think you know if the if the uh, situation calls for it and you do ask someone about their grief i think it just shows that that person cares about what that other person is going through and, and at the same time be prepared to to sit there and be a listener and allow that other person to, you know, talk and and to uh, talk to that person about the, the grief that they're going through. And I think it's therapeutic in, in ways like that. But, you know, the crazy thing, Dr. Ward, is that some of the research recently has shown that people who expose their grief, like, like they go to a party and they talk about the person who died or if they cried or if they look sad, that they are less likable. Yeah, it's almost, it's like wearing the label. It's like, it's like going into a party and wearing a label that says, I lost my spouse. I lost my child. And a lot of people, parents, wear that label because a lot of times they don't know how to go through the grief process correctly. And yeah, and, and it can become unknowingly a negative to the people around them because the other people may not know how to respond or react or what to say. And, and yeah, and sometimes, you know, those people could end up at a party or a gathering and it just kind of becomes a downer, so to speak. And 
you know, this is, you know, but you have covered a very complex subject. But in Western culture, we don't want to hear about grief, I guess. We don't want to hear about somebody's sadness. We, we want to see that they're back to life and sort of with it again. And so they fake it. And yeah. that's not right. In other cultures, in some other cultures, there's a lot more openness about loss and grief. I always loved that my, my Uncle Horace, the old Sicilian that he was, would, would talk, would have, be having a conversation with somebody, um, or he was having a conversation with me, he might say, your mother would say, he'd bring her up, and then he'd cry, he'd tear up, and then he came back, and we would go on. And so he could actually integrate loss into the conversation in such a beautiful way where he wasn't afraid of feeling his feelings or demonstrating his feelings. But yeah. it didn't mean he was horribly sad. Yeah, and I think it's just, it just comes down to where, yeah, and I think you're right. Uh, a lot of people don't want to um, hear about pain, hear about loss, but I think that society today needs to show more compassion, more grace, more mercy and have a better listening ear and stop thinking about themselves all the time. You know, we need to, you know, we need to be there for, you know, other people. But in your book, um, some researchers suggest that we make meaning from our losses. But you suggest instead that loss is about the meaning we make. Uh, would you explain the difference? Sure. Um, as I said earlier, emotion is meaning, grief is meaning, grief has rich meaning to it. And uh, making, meaning making, they call it, is about, it's more like a redemptive story. It's like if, you're, if your child dies of, uh, with being hit by a drunk driver, let's say, that you develop some program that punishes drunk drivers or or you do some good in the world in regarding an interest of your child's, or that's meaning-making. But grief itself has meaning. You know, the, the people we love and lost have so much meaning to our lives and who we are. And what we need to do is look for the meaning we derive from that relationship and how we could put that into the future. Sort of like I was talking about, about my, my father studying his math books. That, that was meaning for me. It was, it's so important to learn and to keep learning. And I'm always trying to learn something, otherwise I wouldn't be writing books. So what, is the meaning of that person to us and what do they represent in terms of who we are? And and to look for the meaning in grief and to look for the meaning in the person we lost. Yeah. Now you end you end your book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, with an emphasis on not healing, but hope. Now, would you share that message with us? And also, where can all of my listeners and viewers order your book? 
Well, start first with the second part because it's easier, uh, either on Amazon or from the publisher, the American Psychological Association, or from, from any of the online bookstores have it, or I assume physical bookstores will have it as well. Now, hope. The reason I ended with hope uh, had something to do with my, my personal life. And, you know, just talking about my personal experience of grief is so odd for me as a psychologist and psychoanalyst to be talking about my own experiences. Uh, and, and I hope nobody, especially my former clients who read my book, feel sorry for me because I, I think my life has been meaningful based on the losses I've experienced. Um, I wrote about hope starting with when, when my father died, one of the things I, I uh, took with me was a jar of fava beans that he had in his workshop. And he had these fava beans on his shelf for 10 years. And I realized they were my mother's last crop of fava beans. And every year she'd put the dried beans in the jar and save them for the next year to plant. And so he kept these beans there. There was something about them that was really important. That was right there on my shelf. Uh, years and years later, I learned that, that fava beans are a symbol of hope for people when they're, when they're sad, when they feel they've, they've lost something or they need something. And it was because the Sicilians, when they were going through a drought in, I think, the 1600s, prayed to St. Joseph to give them rain. And they had rain, fava beans grew. So fava beans became some special um, thing to put on the altar for St. Joseph's Day. So I thought a lot about hope. And in terms of memory, hope is forward-looking. It's future-looking. When we grieve, we get stuck in our past. And what we need to do is to have hope that good feelings can return to us, that there are relationships in the world that could give us good feelings or experiences that can give us good feelings. Giving up hope is it makes us stay still. We have to learn from our experiences and look into the future. And that's what hope does. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lemia said it best. I mean, you know, it's hope. And and what other way to end your book, Dr. Lemia, but with hope and where people, you know, we're all going to live with some sort of grief in our lifetime, but we have a life to live you know, ourselves, we're still here and we need to live that life to the fullest. But at the same time, we can take those memories of those that we have lost with us. So it doesn't have to be a sad day every day. And ladies and gentlemen, you can buy Dr. Mary Lamia's book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, which ultimately leaves the bereaved with precisely that, hope. Hope does not extinguish grief, as Dr. Lamia states, but it can take our memories of those we have lost with us to a better or different future places. Dr. Lamia, I want to thank you so much 
for sharing with us this very complex subject of grief. And hopefully many of my TV viewers and uh, radio listeners uh, will learn about grief uh, through your book. And ladies and gentlemen, again, you can buy Dr. Mary Lamia's book, Grief Isn't Something to Get Over, which is available on Amazon.com. That's probably the fastest and quickest way to get that book. And, you know, if you know someone who has been going through grief recently or still having a hard time getting, well, I want to say getting over, but getting through that time in their life, I would suggest that you get this book for them. Bless them with this book because, hey, it ends in hope and there's always a better day regardless of what we've lost in the past. But, you know, we're not going to forget those people we've lost and that they'll always be with us. And Dr. Lamia, again, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today and sharing us again about grief and, you know, and still live life. Thank you for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, stay with me because I will be right back with more. <music> 